Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports medicine, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Reviews reviews on these platforms are always appreciated. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is a clinical athlete continuing education coordinator and a physiotherapist himself at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. You got my clinic name right this time. I nailed it that time. Nailed it. We are also joined by a very special guest, physical therapist and clinical athlete provider, Michael Amato. What's Mike? What's Mike up? What's up, Mike? <laughs> I'm up. That's what's going on. <laughs> it's uh, you know, 10 o'clock on the East Coast, but we're okay. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I'm right. Yeah, same time zone. you guys. Uh, same time zone? Good. good. It's, a, it's 7 for me, so... It's great to have you on the show, man. So Mike is a PT at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness. They got the dream team over there and has been an extremely valuable member of the Clinical Coffee Forum for over two years now. Uh, he's got great perspective regarding the integration of strength and conditioning in the science of pain and rehab. And I personally always enjoy learning from him. Mike, can you tell our six listeners... What's led you to the pinnacle of your career here on the Clinical Athlete Podcast, more importantly, uh, to your current interests in the field? Yeah, thank you guys for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I feel very humbled. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, I think quickly out of school, I realized that I didn't know a lot, as we all kind of come to learn. Um, that just kind of led me to like figure out more of what I didn't know, and that I just stumbled upon Juggernaut, I think, one day, just by random, because one of my uh, one of my old like classmates had uh, been interested in powerlifting, so I kind of found a, an article that he read, and that kind of just like opened up a black hole of me learning about strength and conditioning and realizing I don't know anything about this, and it seems pretty applicable to my field, even though I didn't get any of the education in school, and I um, started networking in Boston, and I ended up working at a, a gym called Ant Fitness, and that's when I that's when I joined Clinical Athlete, and that was pretty much like a turning point in my career. So between like getting more experience in like a coaching realm, and then diving into the form of Clinical Athlete, I just it just kind of satisfied that hunger I had for learning more about what I didn't know. This is one of my favorite things about Clinical Athlete is that I I grow like I feel like I grow with you guys. But, you know, you're in Boston, I'm in California, but for the past two and a half years, we've both been learning, you know, Jared, you too, like we've joined in very in a similar time frame, like just kind of growing as clinicians together. And it's really cool to watch the evolution of, of you guys. And then for me to be able to learn and, and vice versa, um, you, Mike, you were at a, one of the courses that we did, one of the clinical athlete movement seminars that we did in yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's where we met in person. Have mm-hmm. we met? Have we been? Have we met in person any other time? No, that was it. That was when uh, I know that was cool though. That was that old CrossFit gym in Southie. That yeah. was like that was true Boston. Southie. Oh yeah. So the format of this show is Q and A style. We're gonna have a bunch of questions from the Clinical community, and we're going to answer as many as we can. Quick disclaimer, as always, some of the questions we receive are regarding very specific injuries, a few of which are impossible or unsafe to answer via podcast. So we'd highly recommend you head over to the clinical athlete directory and and find a provider in your area or email us at info at clinicalathlete.com. We can try to point you in the right direction. Other injury questions that we get are a little bit more general, so we'll always do our best to answer, but still recommend you check out the directory or email us. Lastly, we always get more questions than we can answer during any one show. So if we didn't get to yours, there's decent chance that we will in the future so let's jump right in mike we always make our guests read the first question and also answer the first question so that jared basically the goal is that jared and i do as little work as possible that's that's exactly the goal 
right, I like this one by uh, Taylor Ackle. Shout out to Taylor. Um, in relationship to other physios and coaches, how do you handle disagreement with those who aren't always off base? with whom you're not thrilled because of how they practice. I'm thinking of a classmate who is super sharp, but sometimes used passive slash manual therapies out of what seems to be laziness, which in turn makes me want to disregard him entirely. Hopefully that classmate isn't listening. But, uh, <laughs> no, that's totally fine. Um, I, I like that question because it kind of hit home for me. I've uh, hopped around a lot. I've kind of had a couple different jobs over the last couple of years. Um, so it's taken me some time to really find the environment that I love, which is Boston PT and Wallace. Um, but I think a big thing with that that I've had to kind of uh, reconcile myself is that like you're not going to find a clinician who's exactly like you. Um, which is important. I don't think like we need to be exactly homogeneous and like we need to all treat the same way, uh, especially with different populations and you've had different experiences um, in the past. I, I think like what's most important to me with that kind of stuff is someone's openness to at least listen and consider what you have to say. And it might take time for somebody like that to like maybe come around on something you truly believe, but if the environment has been fostered to kind of like be open to that change, that's what I look for. And I, I've had negative experiences with that in the past where like I've gotten a lot of negative feedback in terms of not just being closed minded to change. And that's where I've kind of like, you know, kind of either dropped the conversation or moved on. And with, you know, in that situation, I would just look for that and maybe also as an opportunity for you to learn more about how you, um, justify your beliefs. Because if, like, you're having to try to convince somebody about something that you believe, you have to really, you know, kind of dig deep and understand, like, where are you getting your knowledge from and how justified are you in kind of demonstrating that to somebody else. I don't know how you guys have experienced that before, but that's kind of where I come from with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll jump in. I I, I love that sentiment, Mike, and uh, and I definitely agree that it's a really important thing to have the the openness to, or for someone to have the openness to have those sorts of conversations. Um, and if it's not there, I mean, there's not much that that you could do about that as the person who's trying to affect the change. If they're not open to it, then they're not, and you kind of don't have too much else that you can do. Um, and I also agree that as we're sort of passing judgment on what someone is doing, not a, and I don't think it should be on who someone is or, or passing judgment on someone, but maybe how they practice or this particular thing they've said um, or that action. I think we also need to be, we need to be scrutinizing what we do. And as you said, the, the source of our information. Um, and I, I think that it doesn't need to be dichotomous. Like I think we could say, I can think of a few people offhand who, you know, maybe uh, I, I know whether professionally or, or otherwise. And I could say, like, I'm not really a fan of how they treat. Maybe I'm not really comfortable referring people to them. Um, and maybe I can list the reasons why. But I, you know, won't say they're not necessarily a helpful practitioner or that they haven't made people better. But this is why I don't agree with X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know. It comes up sometimes with patients having conversations about their other health practitioners that they've maybe seen in the past or they maybe are seen concurrently. And then I want to be very charitable to that person because I wasn't there. I don't know what happened uh, other than what the patient might tell me, you know, and then I'm forming an assumption based off of probably incomplete information. Um, so even if I don't agree with something, I'll tell the patient that I won't lie to them, but I'll also give something that's already happened. There's not much point necessarily in saying that was crap unless there was something that was done or said that's having persistent effects now like they've, they've instilled a nocebic sort of idea in that person then we'll maybe talk about why it wasn't maybe wholly accurate but you know i'll try my best not to disparage the uh, reputation of the person whether explicitly to someone else or internally within myself it's hard hard to do I'm not great at it but something that i've been thinking about a bunch lately quinn what do you think so the first part of the question, how do you handle disagreement with those who are, who aren't always off base, off base, but essentially who you disagree with? So to take that question at face value, if this is very difficult, but in any discussion, you don't necessarily, or you're not necessarily trying to be right. 
and you're not necessarily trying to win, kind of going back to what you guys have, have already said, it should be a learning experience for both parties. Now, it sounds like perhaps, I don't know the other person, perhaps the other person doesn't really dive into the professional discussion, is not willing to question themselves or doesn't care. That's not necessarily your problem. You can still get something out of the discussion, uh, even if you disagree with them, because sometimes that's as valuable. You you kind of have an internal conversation in your head was like, okay, how, how would I do something differently based on that statement that I disagree with? That type of thing um, doesn't doesn't even have to be a continued conversation with the person. It can just be in your own mind, you know. So let's assume that the other person's not doing anything that would actually put the patient at risk. It's really sometimes um, I think our emotion or our, our willingness or want to be right. And for the other person, like Mike, what you said, like nobody's ever going to treat exactly the same way that you do. But we feel like our biases are more correct. You know, it's just inherent that way. Um, so you just need to recognize that. And towards the second half of the question, this individual sometimes uses passive modalities so that's not the issue it doesn't seem like it's what seems to be the issue is that it's out of laziness and then the underlying issue there is that they're not providing a rationale that seems to be sound they're not backing up what they do uh with with you know some type of clinical rationale that would hopefully be something somewhat evidence-based even passive modalities you can say well i know it's probably a placebo but it can change symptoms and that's been shown. So like that, okay. You know, at least that's better than, ah, I was just tired today. So, you know, I do, I do understand that, but when that, so it's like that little piece that you disagree with, cause you've already mentioned that this individual is sharp and that they're not totally off base with other things, but your knee jerk reaction is because you disagree with this one thing that makes you want to dis disregard everything that they say. And you just got to be, I mean, there's nothing that we can say about that. You just got to be a little bit more disciplined in yourself to be like, okay, I, not everything he says represents that thing that he does. And that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing. People do that to us too. You know, like you're, somebody's probably doing that to you and you wouldn't want that. You would be like, oh, okay. But, that's just one thing, you know, look at all these other things that we agree about. So just kind of like trying to, trying to take it from the other person's perspective. And, and I wish that we could maybe have like a hidden camera and watch these interactions. Cause I'm curious, Taylor, and I know that I've met Taylor in, in real life. And, and so like, I'm, I'm curious how you start the conversations. So are you starting the discussions with a question, which is generally a little easier way to kind of, or, or nicer way to ease into a discussion like that. Oh, why were you doing that? Or like, can you explain that to me? Something like that versus a statement, you know, kind of a bold where the other person now feels like they have to kind of defend and they're all of a sudden, you know, right off the bat, they're on the defensive. So just kind of watch how you're, you're starting these discussions and then use them as a learning experience for yourself and don't necessarily try to, con the goal shouldn't be to try to convince the other person to be on your side, I guess is, is the bottom line for me. <clears throat> what do you guys think? Anything else on that? Good question. No, I like that. I, I mean, yeah, it, should, it should be about like two brains that are trying to like dice it out and trying to figure out like mm -hmm. what you what you both know, what you don't know, and hopefully walk away with something to like question and look look into further. For sure. Yeah, and I like what you said, Quinn, about this should be a learning opportunity for for the person asking the question too. You know, it doesn't go well. There should be you know an opportunity for analysis, uh, you know, why might it not have gone well? What could I do better the next time? And then, you know, that's, that's a plus. I mean, ultimately we're all on the same team, right? Like we should be, <laughs> it. it shouldn't be that like a competition, like within clinicians, because who's the most important person in the room It's the patient. So if the clinician and then me amongst themselves trying to be the show, where, where does that lead that, you know, the patients that's, it's just like, sometimes we forget about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. It's my turn. I think to read a question, I'm going to read a question that I know very little to nothing about. And it's because it's an interesting thing that I'll probably try to learn more about. Um, Anthony DaCosta asks, this probably won't apply to too many athletes because they're physically active, but 
Not sure if you guys have heard about the effective reflective theory of physical inactivity. The premise of the theory is that people are most likely to make decisions to exercise based on their emotional states as opposed to using cognition to weigh the pros and cons of engaging in exercise. In short, people are more likely to engage in behavior that makes them feel good and avoid behaviors that don't. Knowing this, how do you get people who are sedentary to buy into your therapeutic exercises in the clinic and at home? This is a fantastic question, and I'll preface it by saying my patient population doesn't fit this question or like the very last part of that question very well because 99.9% of my population are physically active. I call them athletes because their goals of coming to see me are athletic. Whether or not they're any good at that endeavor is a different story if we want to define athlete. But so I'm, I'm coming from that angle. Just wanted to kind of throw that out there, but I didn't, I had heard of the effective reflective theory or the AR theory, but I didn't know anything about it. And I did a little bit of digging and just for everyone's reference, I found an open access paper on it and it's titled Effective Reflective Theory of Physical Inactivity and Exercise Foundations and uh, Preliminary Evidence. And this is actually from June of 2017. So pretty recent synthesis of the theory. And essentially, to just piggyback on what Anthony already said, it's a dual process model. So you have a type one, this is all happening within the person, within their like kind of thinking process. There's type one process and there's type two process. Uh, I found that actually parallel to type one and type two thinking that's described in the book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's a very, very similar premise, actually. The theory assumes that exercise-related stimuli trigger automatic associations and a resulting automatic effective evaluation of exercise. So it's kind of like that knee-jerk reaction. That's the type one process. And that's how to, going back to Anthony, like that's the emotion of it. How do you feel about exercise in general? And then this, that automatic effective evaluation, that type one process forms the basis for the reflective evaluation, which is a type two process, which can follow if self-control resources are available to the person. So the automatic type one evaluation is connected with an action impulse. It's like impulsive or it's an emotional response. Whereas the reflective type two evaluation can result in the planning. So you're taking a step back and you're actually thinking about things and what you want to do you know, based on your initial state. So there are two processes are in constant interaction, but they kind of direct the individual toward or away from a behavior. In this case, the behavior is exercise. So the AR theory of physical inactivity and exercise predicts that when there is a discrepancy in type one process and type two process or automatic versus reflective and self-control resources are low, which I don't know what those are, self-control resources. I have to, that's what I have to read more about. I, mean, I don't know if that's like like actual tools that you use or what, but behavior is more likely to be governed by the emotional state, the type one process, which is exactly what Anthony was saying. And so I guess you would assume that if somebody's sedentary and they already don't enjoy exercise, they're going to be more likely to have that, to act on that premise that that type one process so i guess for me it's about creating context like if somebody every now and then i do get like a a relative of one of the athletes i have and they come in in a suit and tie and briefcase and they're like oh my back hurts when i was flying to korea for my ceo meetings and i'm like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) it's like okay well let's deadlift and they're like why would i want to do that you know so you have to put I guess it comes down to education for me. Um, put it to contact. So what is it that you want to do? What is it that ultimately you're coming to see me because something that you want to do is being affected or something that you have to do is being affected. So if, if I feel that exercise could somehow affect that in a positive light, I have to create context for exercise to the patient. If they have no mental representation of why exercise is important then it's going to continue to not be fun and not relevant to their situation. Um, if we can try to make it fun somehow, that's cool too. But, you know, maybe that's you know, kind of something we can pontificate on. But I think I'll, well, it's not fair by just saying bottom line is create context, um, it, it, relate it to something that they care about. What do you guys think about that? No, I like that a lot. And like the, like the context part, you can, you can extrapolate that into like, I think a lot of different arenas, like, 
I think what's cool about our clinic um, that we just opened in Winchester is that like you walk in and it just looks like a gym. Like you see turf and a squat rack and dumbbells. And so like we do get a pretty good mix of patient population. Like we have high school athletes, but we also have like the parents and the grandparents that come in. And so like a very common question I get from maybe more of the sedentary population is like, you know, they'll look at somebody rehabbing and they'll be like, is that person exercising or rehabbing? And I'm like, uh. <laughs> so like, you know, there's at least like this precedent when they walk in, they're like, all right, this seems to be a little more of like a physical, physical therapy, um, which is funny because this is the word. <laughs> and then kind of going back to what you were saying about like making it almost like task like focused because like most people come in with some kind of complaint about like either pain or injury, like interfering with some kind of functional task and that involves some kind of movement typically, or maybe like a lack of movement, some kind of position, um, sensitization. So you can make a pretty good argument for like, well, you know, we can kind of almost look at it in more of like a function task based like scenario. And so like, if like you were saying, like that person flying to Korea, like there's some kind of load intolerance maybe to sitting for that long period of time. And we can make you more low tolerant if we load your spine and, you know, you can kind of like kind of march that little path. Um, or sometimes you don't even have to go that far. Like I, I try to almost get the patient to almost like answer their question for them. Like if you just keep like, like using almost like motivational interviewing tools, like if you just kind of keep asking questions, I'll almost like summarize for them and be like, so, so far you've told me like X, Y, and Z, like, where do you think we need to like intervene? Or like, where do you think like the issue is like, you know, uh, coming to a rise and we can kind of control it from a certain uh, point of view. But that's a, that's a lot. Of, yeah. Uh, so I pretty much agree with all the context based stuff you're saying in that sense. So what I'm getting is that you're a brain ninja. Yeah. It's kind of like I've heard uh, like Jedi mind tricks before. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. No, I agree with, with all that too. I think that um, it, it sounded from the get-go, just reading the question to me, it sounded kind of like we're asking how do we create buy-in? You know, how do we maybe, if we if we grant the assumption that we're dealing with a population or the person who's not really readily inclined to exercise or be active. How do we then create it so that, or create a situation so that their, their type two reflective processing, if I'm understanding this right, might outweigh their type one knee jerk reaction. Um, and so creating context, creating buy-in, that's the first step. And I think that we need to also consider how we might, um, minimize or eliminate barriers. So, um, oftentimes, uh, actually I can think of a few people offhand that I've seen this week and last week, uh, really busy people say they don't really have much time to exercise. So I'm trying to think of things that they can do that serve to improve their current situation. I tell them how this is supposed to help them, but there are things that they can do while they're brushing their teeth or while they're after they get about, you know, uh, from the table after, after dinner, you know, if, if I need to get them to do some squats, I'll say, okay, just do five or 10 squats when you finish your meal and then walk away or, you know, do these, these things while you're on break at work, things that should be pretty low cost and, and, and not everyone follows through with them. But I feel like if we minimize those barriers or those perceived barriers anyway, maybe we can give them, you know, get them to have a little bit of a taste and then they maybe recognize that, oh, this is not so hard. And maybe this is in fact helping me to get what I ultimately want. And then maybe they're, they're more inclined to, to buy in a little bit more and you get to do them or get them to, to do something else that maybe you couldn't start with. So anyway, uh, if I talked more, I'd just be echoing what you guys said, but I think that was great stuff. I'm going to throw a, a point out there that's more for food for thought. And it's not necessarily my, uh, belief or philosophy, but it's not, we can't save everyone. And sometimes people are, are just not right for this particular treatment, or, you know, maybe they're not in a place in their life to listen to what we feel would benefit them the most. So the question of, well, how do you get somebody to exercise that doesn't want to exercise? Well, maybe you don't. 
maybe you, maybe you, you explain all these things, you explain why you think maybe this particular activity would be beneficial for them to do. You've, you've explained all that. You've, you've tried to, to get them to answer their own questions, but they are still just not willing then okay that's fine and we what you can do is jared you mentioned some lifestyle modifications you can you can make a list for them you can change all these things and and you may have uh some that may help you know if we're like addressing your triggers and we're altering some of your behaviors and then you educate them on the pain process in general like what does that what does it actually mean just make you know nothing's going to snap crackle and pop the pain that you're feeling is not doesn't mean that damage is occurring so you've at least covered that base so they have more of a, a representation of what they're dealing with and you send them on their way and if and when they're willing to come because you don't need to, they're going to come see you again for what you're going to tell them the same thing so and if if and then they're willing to maybe go with the next step and and try what you guys have talked about then that's great but sometimes i think we put too much pressure on ourselves to get people to do what we want them to do and the other side because uh, Scott Morrison has said, I heard him say this on our podcast. Actually, I think he said like, you're not, you don't want to exercise or do physical activity. Why are you here? Why did you come to mm-hmm. therapy? Maybe people have a weird contextual framework of what physical therapy is, but there's a disconnect there. And then I've heard Greg Lehman kind of echo similar things. Like not everyone needs to squat, deadlift, bench press and throw shit around like or maybe you know it would benefit them but it kind of goes back to what i said they're just not willing um and we should be able to at least provide them something to intervene mm-hmm. with and then ultimately it's their choice what do you guys think about that you go mike uh, i like it i mean i've had i've had people i've had someone walk out on a session with me so it's not like you know it's, <laughs> it, it's you definitely can't bet a thousand um and you just hope that you said something to some effect that will help them down the line. But, you know, like you said, you, you or what you're providing may not be like the best fit at that time. For sure. I think, uh, there's a, one of my first colleagues had said, you know, I was bright eyed, bushy tail coming out of school. And she, she said like, you're not going to help everybody. And it didn't take long for that to really sink in. Um, you know, and, and I, a word that might, be accurate as I've become a little bit more jaded or maybe the better word is just realistic. And I think that for people who, who care a lot about what they do, which is hopefully most, you know, rehab providers, um, or clinicians, there's a probably an inherent tendency to, to ascribe value to ourselves based on how well we do with people. And that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Like we need to do the best that we can. And that might look different depending upon, the situation and not everyone is ready or, or, you know, maybe we're not the person they need to be seeing right now and we just do what we can and kind of need to be okay with that. I think great question. Great answers too. So my turn, this is a question that I'm actually excited for, for both of your answers on. Um, this is a, an Instagram tag. It's Martina and La Distanza. Quinn, that was better for you. That was Spanish, it sounds like, anyway. <laughs> um, the question is, how do you discern between peripheral and central sensitization? And my answer is, I don't know. Um, and if I were seeing somebody in, in clinic and they seemed sensitized in some way, I'm not sure that I would really care all that much because they're still sensitized. They would still have triggers, things that would piss off something and things that would hopefully make them feel better. Um, they would still have a, um, a history of, of those symptoms. And this is again, assuming that no red flags are present, you know, we don't have any sort of weird systemic things going on. So I wouldn't really care that much. I don't think I'd assess any differently. I don't think I'd treat any differently, whether I had a diagnosis of centralized or central sensitization versus peripheral sensitization. I'd care more about what they can tolerate right now still care about what they want to do and where they currently are and then try to figure out how do we get them closer to where they want to be and just recognize that the same rules probably apply where you know we're, we're probably going to get some some flares it's probably not damaging it's probably okay let's set that expectation to progress the way we normally would so let me turn it over to you guys 
Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I I feel like I knew we were gonna pick that one. <laughs> it's like chock full of stuff. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting to me coming from like just reading you know, the research on and reading Explain Pain, Explain Pain Supercharged, and uh, they talk about these concepts a lot. And um, I'm not denying that they're not real, but I think what's always kind of hard to conceptualize and maybe step back and kind of take in the big picture is that like all these things are like models so like we're, we're trying our best like and that's what science does is that we just kind of reduce things to its parts and then try to build it back up into like a model that makes sense so that we can like learn from it teach other people and hopefully it can like kind of progress our knowledge forward um and so with this peripheral versus central sensitization like i it's it's one of those areas where I think it may have to do with it's a really great research topic and it's a great way of understanding more of what's kind of going on under the iceberg. So I kind of use this like iceberg analogy where like what you need to know to kind of pass on to the patient and what like you need to know to actually effectively like know the information. And that, it might be one that might be one of those topics that like it just doesn't come across well that clinically. And I could be wrong, and I, I've seen some Twitter arguments over this on how to like treat certain neuralgias and things like that, and that may be indicated. But when I have a patient in front of me, I think like it's kind of almost like this catch twenty two with that. Like I think pain science and this whole biopsychosocial approach is kind of taking this more whole wholeness picture. And if we start, like, kind of going down these routes of, like, trying to dissect out peripheral versus central sensitization, we're kind of making the same mistake we did with, like, spinal biomechanics. It's kind of like you learn spinal, biome- spinal biomechanics to, like, know how the spine moves, but maybe you don't need to, like, extrapolate that, reduce it to its parts, and, like, kind of use it as something to treat in the moment. And so I, I try to... I try to always check my bias with this kind of stuff, but I don't want to make the same mistakes I made in the past with uh, being too reductionist. And so that's, that's kind of what I think when I um, approach that topic. Now, if I wanted to like speak even further about it, I'd probably say I would probably use more of a predictive processing model over that. And I don't know if that topic's too big to get into that, but I'll let Quinn talk before I start to ramble off on that. Let me before Quinn does. I called that the words predictive processing would make at least one appearance in this podcast, <laughs> even if we had no questions containing it. You can't it's availability bias. About it. Yeah, it's Let's availability it. bias. <laughs> um, we're defining central sensitization. I think potentially being misrepresented in this dichotomy, I think it's my understanding that central sensitization is not necessarily synonymous with a psychosomatic issue. So I think when we, we hear central sensitization, we then think, oh, it's the psychosocial element of pain now. They have, they've now centralized their pain experience. But I've seen central sensitization defined clinically as, let's say somebody's coming in with an acute local knee pain. It's mechanical. It's very specific to the spot. It's consistent. And then over time, as it becomes more chronic, it's, it jumps around, but it's not, it's not local. It's not pinpoint anymore. It's more diffuse around the knee or it's like in the back of the knee today. It's a side. It's a front. It's like the, the patient becomes less able to describe it with any consistency. I've seen central sensitization defined as that process, which is still perceived as peripheral by the patient. It's still their knee, but, but the mental, I, I guess the, the, description of central sensitization is that now the the sense the mental map of the sensory map is now more kind of diffuse and broad like if you wear a glove on your hand the brain map is now one big representation of your hand your hand is now just one finger instead of five digits over over time something like that so i think it's a false dichotomy peripheral sensitization versus versus central sensitization. I think it comes down to what both of you have said is ultimately what do they want to do? What can they do currently? How can we bridge that? And it doesn't really matter. You just take the symptoms as they are and it, it doesn't necessarily make a difference. I don't know if there's any valid way to differentiate because I don't think that those terms are defined well enough 
to create that type of dichotomy. And then I don't think that we have interventions that are specific to central sensitization versus specific to peripheral sensitization. And if we do want to make it central sensitization is more synonymous with uh, the psychosocial side of things, then, okay, we're measuring, we can measure fear avoidance with certain questionnaires. We can, we can ask them about their, um, you know, anxiousness or kinesiophobia. We can measure that with certain questionnaires again, but does that ultimately change what we do? I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think the answer is, is yes with any definity. <clears throat> so that's kind of my thought on it. I think we need better definitions of these things before we can parse out different assessment tools and ultimately intervention tools. Now, predictive processing. <laughs> Tell us everything, Mike. I don't know anything about it, but, um, I mean, in terms of this peripheral versus central sensitization, I, I think it's, it could be a really easy compromise when you start to use a model like predictive processing, which looks at what are the top-down influences from the central nervous system and what are the bottoms-up influences from, like, the sensory information um, coming in from the environment or coming in from the body. And I, I have a better time rationalizing that approach in my head because I... And this may not be a parallel to central versus peripheral synthesization, but, you know, someone is coming to me and, like you said, they've had, you know, multiple-year chronic knee pain history and, you know, through the interview, I'm understanding their beliefs and maybe they have some maladaptive beliefs and some avoidance of activity and, you know, maybe they've been fed some imaging information that they kind of perseverate on. Then, then I'm thinking, like, all right, they have a very strong top-down model of what their knee is and that's changed over time and context is very significant in this episode and that's why maybe the knee pain is kind of weird and uncertain and kind of random pattern it doesn't really like fit a specific like location like pin that you can pinpoint and for someone like that i'm like well they're still going to need some peripheral or bottoms up stimulation from exercise or movement, but they're also going to need like top down, you know, reconceptualization and top down reframing to, or else it's not going to match up. You know, like my, my argument is like PT can't be done like under anesthesia or like PT, you know, like you can't, you can't like knock somebody out and give it and make them forget like, you know, what they did in the session or they're also they're probably not going to have like that positive outcome. So it, it needs to be like this conscious event with this kind of unconscious kind of or non-conscious um, peripheral input that you're providing through hopefully movement. Um, and that's what kind of makes sense to me. And I think that the predictive processing model maybe has that compromise with some of the brain centric and kind of peripheral centric um, models that we've kind of battled back and forth over the years. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it totally does. I'm just, no, 100%. I'm just trying to think is it's like, is peripheral synonymous, peripheral sensitization synonymous with bottom up and essential sensitization synonymous with top down? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think if, yeah, I think if, if Lorman Mosley was listening to this conversation, he'd like kick the door down and tell us that we're talking about it kind of maybe a little too generally, but, um, it, yeah, it, it's just a way that it helps me think better clinically. And I, and as I kind of explore the literature on, on it more, I understand it has limitations because it's a little bit theoretical right now. But um, I'm at least like inquisitive on kind of seeing where it where it leads us. So it gives you a mental representation of the clinical picture, kind of what. Yes, I think it accounts well for like. Both, again, again, like if you had to dichotomize two camps of people that were treating pain by looking at it mostly through like a brain kind of centric realm, or like almost like a anatomical, I think it can kind of people on like either side of the pole or closer to closer to either side of the pole. Would you say that you address, like in your mind, so mental representation of the clinician, um, you're kind of addressing top down, bottom up. Top down is like education, expectations, reframing, mm -hmm. su subjective, you know, non specific things 
therapeutic alliance. Yeah, all of exactly. those really, really important things that are hard to measure. And then, you know, that peripheral stimulus, stimulation is, is, is the exercise itself, but you're not, those two things aren't separated. Cause no. yeah, I mean, even the exercise can have like, can affect top down processing, right? You can show somebody that they, they can do something that they didn't think they could do. Exactly. And I think that's why it, com- it comes down to like what matters clinically. And again, like learning about it, I think gives us like conviction and like more understanding of like, how can we frame it for the patient or the uh, individual? And, and then hopefully like that paints a better like clinical treatment session that like you're more direct and that you're kind of trimming the fat, like the stuff that doesn't matter as much. Because like I mean, over the years, I feel like I'm I'm doing less and less and less and less with my treatments, and I I see that as a good thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hopefully, totally. Beauty. I think uh, I think you're up again, Mike, for a question. All right. But yeah, if people want to learn more about that, I recommend reading because I I can't speak to the totality of it, but. Um, there's that uh, Angoro paper, Angoro and Kapchuk, the symptom perception in the Beijing brain. That's a good place to start. Okay, so this is a good one. Uh, what research would you like? To, uh, what research would you like to see done? What clinical questions do you wish you could answer better? This is a cool one. Um, I would love to see more research on like clinician bias and. Mm patient interaction um and uh, like i guess essentially how how uh, clinician bias affects patient uh, interaction outcomes i think there was a study not too long ago in jspt looked at like known group validity with scapulodyskinesis and they had like an unblinded group of assessors and a blinded group of assessors and there was a difference in what the unblinded assessor saw and diagnosed with uh, scapulodyskinesia. So essentially, like if you knew the patient was in pain, you were more likely to diagnose them with scapulodyskinesia as opposed to the blinded um, therapist. I think like research like that is, I, I just think needed more. I think it highlights like the things that we talk about a lot, but it's hard to kind of measure anecdotally session to session. And if you're, you know, again, having those disagreements with other clinicians or you're trying to, you know, be less wrong, like, why not take it to that level and, like, have more of a scientific method of looking at this stuff? I, I know it's out there. I just like to see, I mean, I'd like to see more of it. For sure. Um, I'm going to steal Quinn's answer from the previous episode that we recorded with Steph Allen. Um, I'd like to see more research done on acute chronic workload ratios, specifically for barbell sport athletes, because currently um, all the research has been done on field sport athletes. So hmm, uh, one of the questions that we tackled in Steph's episode was, you know, how do we, how do we apply those concepts? And Quinn answered, well, that we, we can't really right now. We can kind of guess at certain things and apply, you know, concepts, but, but to say that we're really applying acute chronic workload ratio principles as they stand in the literature right now is a bit of a stretch. Um, so I, I'd love to see some of that because I think there's, there's a big, um, hunger for that. You know, uh, I've seen a lot of, of posts on social media from people talking about that, that sweet spot, that, 0.8 to 1.3 um, ratio, but, but not necessarily in the context of field sport athletes. It's kind of been like, hey, this is a thing that we should look for for like everything. And we have to be like, well, like we, we can't say that right now because we just don't know that. Right. So I, I'd love to see some of that done. Me too. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Along the same lines, the. Just the, the notion and the concept of, of, of training load monitoring is where I'm, I'm basing a lot of my practice on currently because I, it, it simplifies, it distills things down for me as a clinician and also for the patient to just essentially work within your means and, and progress gradually. And we can, you know, we can, but we can put a conceptual framework on that. However, the right now where we're at is like we have, this we have literature that's just giving us data and so like with acute to chronic workload ratios we've just got we're just collecting mountains of data that are that are spewing specific ratios and then we're finding that some subset 
types of athletes, very, you know, specific sports, specific times of the year, specific levels are showing different risk, different uh, percentage of risks of injury based on what they're currently doing in training. It's like, that's great. That's a great place to start. It's the problem is it's, it's a hundred percent data and correlation driven. We don't know which way the arrow is going. And I'm probably saying this right now because I'm nipples deep in, in causal inference. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm really geeking out on causal inference right now. And, and that's something that I think we get all freaked out about. It's like, ah, causation. And we can't, you know, we can't prove anything causes anything or these types of things. And then we are like, just sit on our haunches and say, well, correlation. And we're cool with that. But again, it's like, why? So we look at AC ratios. Why is it 0.8 to 1.3? Or why does a spike of doubling your workload this week versus the last month increase your risk for injury? Why did Joe triple his work and not get hurt? But Johnny, you know, doubled his work and just got blown out of the water. So I know that, um, that there's an editorial and I think, I don't know if it's, I don't know if Gavin is the lead author, um, but it's essentially explaining moderate or it's, it's throwing the notion out of moderators and mediators, a mediator being something that facilitates the risk, a moderator being something that buffers the risk. So maybe what was the dude's first name who didn't get hurt and tripled his workload? Joe. I think Johnny was my second yeah. guy. <laughs> so, so the first guy. Well, okay, maybe. So let's look at all these factors because causal causal inference would say you can't just look at the data. Data is stupid. The data doesn't doesn't take into account all of the other factors in, that come into play. All it tells us is just spews out information. So maybe Joe is young, younger. Maybe he has a, a longer training age. Maybe he doesn't have a history of injury. And then other components, maybe his sleep is on point. Uh, maybe he has genetic predispositions for certain things where Johnny doesn't. Maybe Johnny has had prior injury. Maybe he's, uh, doesn't have as, as high of an aerobic base. If we're talking about field sport athletes, which has been potentially shown to be a moderator. Um, just aerobic capacity in general can have a, maybe have a protective factor. So we've got to start looking at these other factors and then figuring out why some people respond favorably to certain programs or certain uh, progressions and others don't. Cause it's, it's real easy. Cause right now all we're at is like, don't spike their workload too fast and don't do too little. And honestly, that's where we're at. Because yeah. the, the specific ratio itself, you can really only extrapolate it to the subsets, the types of athletes that they were tested on. <clears throat> and even, even they're calling to question, even the way that those ratios were uh, calculated. And we talked about this with Gavin on the podcast that's going to be released soon with coupled versus uncoupled AC ratios and some statistical problems with coupled ratios. So mm -hmm. we went into detail with that. So, We'll get into that, but um, I, th I think that's what we need. We need to figure out other factors. We need to we need more prospective data on training load monitoring. That's what I really, really want to see, and, and I think that's the direction that that it's headed. Like when your causal inference is that from the the book of why? Is that where you're in right now? That's currently what I'm what I'm reading. The book of why. Okay. New cool. science of cause and effect. It looks like a pretty intense workbook with that. It's yeah. So the supplemental information, the supplemental. Because I'm listening to it on audiobook and mm -hmm. I printed out the supplemental packet, which is just like the diagrams and the figures and okay. that are in the book. But it's 80, so it's 80 pages of that. And so as I'm listening to it, I'm like trying to, for me, still like physically writing, physically taking notes is how the best way for me to learn. It gives me that mental representation because I can put it into my own words. I can like draw my own little diagrams, these types of things. But so that's what I'm into right now. Yeah, you're just updating your top down model. Oh, yeah, there he is. <laughs> there you go. And I, it's uh, you know, I don't know if it's, it's nothing. It's nothing crazy new. It's just, it's just like let's take us, let's take it a step further. Like we do, we do cause cause and effect all the time. Like we know that the rooster doesn't make the sun come up. Like we know the, the common sense tells us the direction of that arrow, but with more complicated scientific questions, 
that we don't know which direction the arrow is pointing. And if mm-hmm. we can, if we can have a better idea of that, then we can, our interventions can matter more. I like that. For sure. We should probably bring this in, uh, cause Mike, it is late for you. Um, and we, we appreciate you sacrificing some, uh, some video gaming time to, uh, chat with us nerds. <laughs> you play video games, Mike? Oh, I'm deep in the red dead right now. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> hey, where can people find out more about you? Uh, I have a pretty, yeah, I have, a, I have an Instagram that I don't post a lot on, but I, I am like responsive to it. So, um, this is my name, Michael Viamato on Instagram. Uh, I'll post stories about like my mediocre lifting and it's pretty sweet though. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> well, and you're and like, in the, like I get articles from you. Yeah. I'll post articles. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do like, uh, whatever is interesting to me that day or week. Um, and it may just be totally out of left field, you know. But, but sorry, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say that that could be really helpful for people who, uh, like you mentioned, you encourage people to, to do some reading uh, in reference to the predictive processing model, you know, because that's interesting stuff, and it's better to go to the source material. That I've I've found people like yourself and, and other folks who throw out papers on Instagram are really helpful because at least it lets me see what's out there and then figure out, oh, that's interesting. Let me go read that later. And then it kind of starts me down the rabbit hole. So people need to check that out. Plus, you get to look at Mike's hair. It's fantastic. It's, I'm trying, man. It's, oh. it's, a, slow, it's a slow process. So we're we're going to get it down to here. Oh. <laughs> Seriously? It's, it's, it's audio. He, Michael was, was imit or imit. I can't speak. I was gesturing to his shoulders. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be great. <laughs> but yeah, going back to what you said, like, I'll, I'll often get questions like, how do you find articles? And it, it, I'm at a point now where I've surrounded myself with enough people and enough of a network that, like, I can't escape the articles. Um, they find so you. Like, yeah, exactly. But that's, like, something I think everyone should kind of strive for. And, like, I, I don't, I stress it a lot when everyone is, like, or students or young clinicians who ask me questions. It's like, just go to the primary source. Like, you, you can't read enough. So. If you want to read more, you can follow me. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, uh, I get to work with a great team over at Boston PTO on this. So um, you'll, you can find some of my coworkers on Instagram too. A little more famous than I am, but uh, Zach, Zach Gabor, Steph Allen, uh, they're all great. Zach's notoriously quiet, right? Doesn't like to talk a lot? No, he doesn't really like, he doesn't spend any time on social media. He kind of doesn't, you know. What about Hermit? Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, hopefully this can be a kick in the ass for you to post more. Exactly. The world <laughs> I'll try a little by little. Well, uh, thanks so much for being on the show, dude. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. This, this is great. Again. Yeah, and I'm, I'm cool with staying up late. This is fun. Okay. <laughs> Jared, thanks again, as always. My pleasure, man. And we'll see everyone next time. <laughs>